Hey folks, How to Grow a Whole Family Part 8, and this one is about pain. I've had a hard time figuring out where to put this one, so I'm just going to drop it here. And then I've got a couple more left in this series. Those are going to be on circles of family and um, how family is an open circle. But I want to give you a few things today that I've learned about pain over the years. I haven't experienced a ton of pain like many of you have. But I do know a few things about it, and I have read quite a bit about it. Now, some people say that there are different categories of pain. Physical pain, emotional pain, maybe say spiritual, relational pain. But I want to connect them all together because emotional is physical. Pain is just pain. That's why physical pain can get emotional and emotional pain can get physical, can it? Because there was never a separation between them. It's all pain. If you pay attention to the way that we deal with physical pain, you can learn a whole lot about how we deal with emotional pain and the pain that you come across in your relationships. So first, let me give you my definition of it, of pain. This is just mine, so this is not something you'll find on a Google search or whatever, but pain is at its most fundamental level a signal of a loss of power. So if you haven't listened to the power episode, maybe maybe listen to that, and my verbiage here is going to make a lot more sense. But it's when you move left on the power spectrum, right? That that episode of power, I described a spectrum, how power kind of goes from left to right on a spectrum, from merely surviving on the left to dominating others on the right and thriving and doing well would be somewhere in the middle. And, and then like our appetite always nudges us toward the right. Why the right? I don't know, because that's the direction we read. So if you're Arabic, just pretend it goes right to left with more on the left. Although then we got to get into like, why do we go from less to more? Why is more of something further along the path as if later is better? And all of that needs to be deconstructed and all of that. So anyways, go with me. We want to move right on the spectrum, and it feels good to get more power. It it satisfies a craving or an appetite that is wired deep within every one of us. It feels good to satisfy that appetite and consume and gain more power, right? Like it doesn't even feel good to be further right. It just feels to gain. It feels good to gain more power to get further to the right. Like nobody is really excited about being full, but we get excited about eating, right? They say that the the average person, I heard a stat somewhere, I don't even know if it's true, but the average person, their elation and excitement about a Christmas present ends about 15 seconds after they've opened it, right? So it's just like the getting more power, it feels so good. And so conversely, Whenever we move left, we lose power. There's pain. Now, in healthy, normal life, we're generally moving very slowly towards more power, at least in the first half of life. And then something moves us left, something out of our control, something outside of us moves us to the left. And pain is whenever that something is threatening and it's looming over us and and something awakens us to that which is threatening our power.
Pain is when the thing outside of you, and it is always from the outside, it interferes with you, and it impedes your natural life of moving right. So you're, you're out there trying to gain more power, more status, more money, and it's not always negative, as if those things are negative. It could be like, you want a better relationship with your kids, more intimacy with your girlfriend, more physical activity, more play, good things that you want, but then you get interfered with because, you know, the universe is kind of random, it seems, and it doesn't revolve around you, and then you're stuck with dealing with it somehow. Now, remember, wanting more power is not necessarily bad, and losing power is not good. I want all humans to have a better standard of living. So I want to give us a few pointers today about pain and how to deal with it to get us back on the track of being healthy. And and if you don't, if you don't deal with it, it can literally cost you your dreams, your goals, your direction in life, even relationships with the people that you love the most. Okay, I want to tell you a few things. Here's number one. All pain is technically a brain-generated experience, okay? So your brain is the only reason why you know that it's pain, why the world knows that it's pain. It's just a brain-generated experience. So you know how this works. You prick your finger on something sharp, okay? It causes tissue damage, which is registered by your pain receptors, the nociceptors in your skin. Each uh, pain receptor is actually one end of a really long nerve cell that goes all the way up into your neck, okay? So this is like a a neuron that is connected on the other end uh, in the spinal cord by a long nerve fiber or axon, okay? And so whenever that pain receptor is activated, it sends an electrical signal all the way up the cell into your neck. And so this nerve fiber that's in your neck is bundled with a lot of others to form a peripheral nerve, and you got an electrical signal that passes up the neuron to your spinal cord. This is really important because it shows us that like literally everything even on the surface is connected to what's deep within us. The, those nerves that are in your fingers and in in your toes are actually an outgrowth of your brain. That is your brain physically. That's your brain. It's just part of it that's connected down there. And so things happening on the outside of us have a real physical connection to what's going on inside of us. Are you tracking? So within an area of the spinal cord, there's called a, a dorsal horn, where electrical signals are transmitted from one neuron to another across uh, synapses. And, and then they're passed up the spinal cord into the brain. And in the brain, signals pass through the thalamus. Now, the thalamus is sort of like the post office in your brain. It sends signals one way to one way or another. So it's like a sorting station. It's like Grand Central Station. It gets all of these different signals from your nerves and it sends some of them to the somatosensory cortex or the somatosensory cortex, which is uh, responsible for like your physical sensation, all of your five senses and your feelings. It sends some signals to your frontal cortex, which is where you do your thinking, your abstract thinking. And then it sends some to your limbic system, which is your emotions. Now, all of that's really important. It sends it to those three places, and you need all three of them. You need to be able to know your pain, like describe it, pinpoint it, know what the pain actually is. That would be your physical sensations. 
you need to be able to think about it in a rational way, your frontal cortex, right? And then you need to be able to feel it, right? You need all three of those, the most healthy, powerful responses, the best responses to our pain come whenever we know it clearly, when we think about it rationally, and when we allow ourselves to feel it emotionally, right? You're, are you tracking with me? This is not just about finger pricks. This is about that person that you want to give the finger to, right? Like they really jacked you up, didn't they? Can you fully describe clearly what it was that they did that hurt? You'd be amazed at how many people can't. Uh, somebody, somebody will ask us what happened and we'll be like, well, we'll just go off on this 10-minute rant. Well, he always does this to me and he blah, blah, blah. And my kids at school, sometimes as I'm calming them down, I can tell that they're really upset. It would take them like 10 minutes to get to like a one-line sentence of what actually just happened. If you just want to clearly explain what was the thing that set you off. And you'd be amazed at how many adults are the same way. You're not describing what happened. You're like way beyond what happened. But clearly, what happened? Oh, you didn't get a pay raise. Oh, that person ignored you. Oh, that person said that and gave you that look. Oh, that's what happened. Okay, so clearly, do you know what happened? And then, did you allow yourself the freedom to fully feel the pain they caused? Because some of us think that our emotions aren't allowed. Like, emotions are bad. Like, no, you just better suck it up and get over it because that's not legitimate. That's not valid. Do you allow yourself the freedom to be sad over something that may sound dumb to other people? And then, can you think rationally about what to do next? And what we found out is, like, if you're stuck in your emotions, you won't be able to. If you have unexpressed emotions, they're going to keep your frontal cortex from doing its job to think rationally about what's next. See, because like pain can often look like this just giant ball of mess in a cloud of dust that handed that somebody handed to you, right? But the healthier we are, the more we'll be able to separate it all out. What happened? What should I do about it? And how do I feel about it? Okay, so back to that little finger prick. So the end result is that you feel a sensation of pain in your finger and then you think logically, what happened? Is this something that requires a Band-Aid or 911? And then you say some explicit words and you react emotionally to the pain. Emotionally, okay? I'll get back to that in just a second, but first, this is fun. Did, did you know that by the time you even have a pain, like your body has already reacted involuntarily? I mean, you kind of knew that. It's called a reflex, but it's why you jerk your hand back even before you feel the hot stove. It's why also you could have something fly toward your eye and you blink even before you know there was something coming at your eye, which would lead us into all kinds of questions about free will and the meaning of life, but emotional responses. Here we go. So, Seth, are you telling me that we really react emotionally to a finger prick. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. This actually blew me away whenever I looked into it and did some research. You ever wonder why kids cry for boo-boos and then we grow, out, we grow out of it? We just grow up and we quit crying? Most of us quit crying for our boo-boos as we get older? Like, I used to think that there was like physical pain crying and then there's sad crying, totally different. Not true. Kids don't cry because physical pain forces it, it's actually emotional, just like crying 
always is. We're now finding out that crying has its roots in attachment. Some researchers in the UK, they did a study and they found out that your attachment style actually helps dictate how much you cry and what you cry over. So first of all, like the kid actually isn't aware of the difference between a Band-Aid and 911 when they prick their finger. They didn't know. They just trust you to figure it out. They cry because it gains them attachment because it's instinctual in them and their emotions are going all over the place because you know their somatosensory perception is alive and well but their rational brain is not exactly what it's going to be when they have a college degree one day and they're still regulating their emotions to correspond with reality and so their emotions can be all over the map they're extremely sad and scared of what may happen next and crying helps them transition back to now and it helps you and me too so why do you stop crying as you got older whenever you prick your finger because your rational brain has grown and it has helped you control the other parts of you and put it all in perspective all right and so like even if it's scary and hurts and it hurts really bad and bad enough to make you cry you also are no longer as dependent on your attachment figure you're grown and so you'll internalize the pain, which is good because we need to internalize some pain, right? You're not shaken to your core at your emotions over a little boo-boo. You're more likely to cry when your kid is hurt than whenever you're hurt. But all pain is a brain-generated experience that we need to be able to own and separate out. Pain is crying out to you. It tells you to stop doing what you're doing do something different protect yourself this way of life isn't working pain also tells you when you don't know the answer that the people you love the most take your pain to them because it not only attaches you it attaches them to you okay second thing all pain is reactionary and it invokes choices for what to do okay so your brain is really smart it's set up to invest in the long term which means that sometimes it often has to decide like which pain to pay attention to and how much to pay attention to it and that's why your nervous system has all, all these varying levels of intensity something can hurt a little bit or a whole lot it's kind of like that scene on major pain whenever the guy's been shot and Damon Wayans says you want me to show you a little trick take your mind off that pain breaks his finger you remember that so there's there's like different levels of intensity to help you decide where to redirect your consciousness all right where should your frontal cortex be thinking about which then you must make a choice as to what to do with the pain and this is where we get really creative in life and this choice is where we so often get off and it's where we have the power to get back on track even today even in long-term situations of abuse and bad choices and our life spiraling into a mess pain it distracts your attention all pain is reactionary it pain is telling you you better stop what you're doing and take care of this thing and if you don't take care of it 
it can destroy you, right? It, even that little small finger prick can, can lead to an infection. And so it is relationally with your community, even a small prick. Um, so your body uh, tells your consciousness, hey, wake up. You, you need to do something with this prick that's bothering you really bad. And this is where it's kind of the fun comes in. You get to decide. Now, two things can happen. Uh, one is uh, you can let it heal itself, or two, you do something about it. The injury doesn't heal itself sometimes, and you, intelligent consciousness, need to do something more direct to direct your attention to the injury. You need to wash it. Maybe you need to put some alcohol on it. Have somebody set your broken bone back in place. Quit walking on it to give your body time to heal. Stop letting them say those words to you. You need to go back and offer forgiveness. You need to stop drinking that, that much. In other words, your consciousness can partner with your subconscious or your non-conscious body reactions to heal. So sometimes your consciousness makes a choice that doesn't work out. My, my granddad... He used to gargle gasoline for ulcers in his mouth. <laughs> and I know people that think that yelling louder is going to help their marriage, right? Sometimes our consciousness reacts like really poorly to address the pain, doesn't it? And then sometimes, and this one's way more common, sometimes our consciousness does something that works during a set time of your life, but it no longer works to help the pain 20 years later because you're a grown-up now. And unfortunately, our brains can hardwire themselves to make choices based on assumptions that are no longer valid. Sometimes we can spend untold amounts of time, energy, even money in order to protect ourselves from something that doesn't even need protection. We don't need protection from. So, so something can constantly distract us based on pre-assumed emotional memory circuits of things that we assume are unchangeable and you operate never even questioning them. So let me give you an example. Uh, one time I had a boss who was really hardcore, like you better perform type attitude. And I was a teacher, and so I always stuck to the script with this boss. And it's funny in education because sticking to the script isn't really good for anybody. I mean, there has to be a script for structure, but the good educators are the people who own it. Who, because this is a relational thing that we're doing here. And so it seemed like every time I tried to like make it my own and own it and step out on a limb and do new things and try new innovative things in my classroom, it, it, it was like mm, something bad's going to happen. And, and I remember feeling like I could not fail underneath this boss so like I couldn't do my own things because my own ideas were often really far removed from the script and I remember there was this other teacher who who, who was young and right out of college and didn't have as much to lose as me and so he went way off the script a lot and he was praised for being an innovator and I remember feeling jealous and, and I wanted to take the chances and go out on a limb, but I would always get this inner mental kickback, you know, like especially in the short term, because anytime you transition from doing things 
the old script way to doing it your way, like you're going to lose some in a transition to, to new ways of doing things. And I didn't have enough confidence and I felt stupid about some of my ideas. And honestly, some of them were bad ideas. And then I had to make sure that every idea that's off the script kind of like fit with everybody else's schedules and expectations because I have to work with a resource teacher and make sure that what she's doing and what the counselor's doing. And I always find myself going, never mind. It's just always going to make somebody mad. I'm going to have to explain myself to this person and that person. Anytime that I try to change the routines around here or do things my way, which remember, as a teacher, you should. But anytime I try to do that, somebody's going to get mad. Somebody's going to think it's a dumb idea. Somebody's going to need to need me to fill out some kind of form or I'm going to have to convince five other people or explain it to this group of people why my idea is, is good. And then whenever it doesn't work, I'm going to feel dumb and they're going to be irritated with me because they had to do things to fit my different ideas. And so I would follow the script and sometimes I would get these little short bursts of energy, you know, and I would step out on a limb. I would teach things my way or do things a little different. And then I would run into opposition and then I would just shut it back down. And I would be like more frustrated and I would just go in my hole. And I found myself continually short because I was living this constrained, conform life going by all the rules and it was suffocating me because I knew that the script didn't work for me. And the second that I did things my own way, it was like all chaos was going to happen. And I really, I really couldn't risk losing my job. Like I really can't make my boss mad because my boss holds power over my job. This is all at stake. I can't screw this up is the way I, I constantly felt. And one night as I was sitting on the couch in the living room, this question came to me that I had never thought about before. I had been exploring the, my past a little bit. Seth, what if you don't have to care what any of those people think? Now, I know that sounds like hardly revolutionary, but it was the first time that in my context I had ever thought that thought. Is I, I searched my past and I realized that my brain had internalized pain from early childhood that said... People are dangerous, and it's not okay to let them out of your sight because they may talk poorly of you, and they may turn on you, and you'd be unsafe. So you better make everybody happy and don't screw it up. But what if I don't have to live that way when I'm 30? You know? I've always lived that way. What if they could talk about me behind my back and it didn't matter? What if I did make them upset, and I lived through the experience to see another day. And you know, as I explored, I really wasn't worried about losing my job. I was worried that losing my job would cause me to lose standing with my wife and with her family and with my family. But here I am, 30 years later, and it's time to re-ask the question, do I have to live that way anymore? What if it's okay if people are upset with me? What if it's okay if I go off script and if I embody who I am as a teacher and I give it my creativity and my insights? And what if I screw it up and everybody talks about me and doesn't like me? And what if that's okay? What if I don't have to be afraid of losing my job? What if my wife did get mad at me and her family was upset with me and I still woke up the next day? See, when you unlock sealed off pain it opens up all kinds of possibilities for your entire life to move forward free 
from constraints. You know what else I realized? I realized that whenever I traced back my path, I could see decisions that I had made in the past, little decisions here and there and college major and all that, that led me to teaching based on the very same flawed assumptions that I had made in the teaching world. Teaching elementary school, which I did for 10 years, turns out I didn't even really want to do that. That wasn't even really my path. It was another path that I let my pain falsely steer me towards. What if I quit? And what if my family and wife still love me? Turns out people who love you are rooting for you. If you're still like avoiding all sorts of things that you think would be painful just because of someone else's approval, there's there's an old saying, people who matter don't mind and people who mind don't matter. Now, of course, people matter, and we shouldn't blow them off, but we also shouldn't give them license to continually walk on us and cause us to redirect our path in life because we're afraid of pain. Sometimes we live our life based on all of these pre-assumed, wired-in, sealed-off emotional circuits that we thought were unchangeable, but what if those wires aren't actually powering anything, right? Remember MacGyver whenever he's always trying to unarm a bomb before it detonated and there's always like all these wires there and if he clips the wrong one, it's going to blow? You ever feel like that? Like what if all of the wires there were dummy wires and none of them caused it to blow? What if you could cut any of them? Okay, next point. Your pain is your teacher. It's telling you something. Uh, I told you that our brain registers pain in our frontal cortex. So it's there that we get to decide what to do with the pain. And there's not always a clear-cut answer. A couple of things that we have to decide. One is how to heal it best, and we'll get to that. And then the other thing is like what to do next time this thing happens or to prevent it. And so uh, to know what to do the next time, you've got to listen. I go running with a, a buddy, Greg, sometimes. Hey, Greg. Greg uh, broke his pelvis last year, all right? Now, I'm assuming there's quite a bit of pain in that. And as I'm running beside him, this guy was a warrior, and he was just coming back. He was in healing mode, and so it's only like he's way ahead of the doctor's pace, and it's only like three months out or something, and he's already starting to run again. And then he picks up his running more and more, and he's running several miles. And I'm running with him one day, and I have very low-level knee pain sometimes when I run. It's not very painful. It's like just enough to remind me that it's there, you know, and, and like probably shouldn't do this for decades and decades. So one day I'm tired and I'm like, my knees are starting to hurt a little bit. If I'd have been by myself, I would have stopped and been like, okay, this is enough. And it hit me. Okay, Greg's running beside me with a broken pelvis. But Greg should be running and making himself hurt because he's in recovery from a one-off event. And Greg said something to the effect of, you've got to hurt more to hurt less which is actually true with acute pain. So even though he's in a great deal of pain, he's getting over it. But I, on the other hand, even though my pain is very minimal, should not have been, should not have been ignoring it. Why? Because my little pain that wasn't a big deal was chronic. And it's happened before, and it's very predictable, and I know what causes it. And it's going to get worse if I just keep 
doing the same thing. So ironically, the, the intensity of the pain doesn't always tell us what to do. Sometimes we have to notice patterns. We have to decide, is this chronic or is this acute? Like, is this something that happened one time because my wife had a really, really bad week? Or does this thing in our relationship keep happening over and over again? Maybe it's just a comment or an eye roll or a look, but it's been happening for 20 years. That's chronic. And maybe, maybe you could do something about that one little thing and maybe you don't have to live with that little thing anymore. So what did I do while I was running? Of course I kept running. You don't bail on a friend with a broken pelvis. Um, <laughs> but you have to think rationally to know the difference between what is chronic and what is acute. The difference between the two is how likely it is to happen again. Sometimes we need to suck it up. There's virtually never a time that you couldn't just suck it up to get through a moment. Say you had like 20 things hit the calendar one particular week and it's just chaos and you have like very much a normal healthy family rhythm because you know you're otherwise really really balanced. And you had a one-off week. In that case you need to suck it up and you need to work really hard. Have a crazy week. Get the things done that you had committed to do. Don't bail out on commitments for, for other people. But if you're on week 20 in a row and there's just a little bit too much stuff every single week and you're tired and tired and tired and you never ever ever get a chance to sleep and you get 80 to 90 percent of your stuff done and expecting to get 100 percent done and you're always frustrated that you can't then you're agitating something over and over again and you need to quit you need to rest like if you're if your spouse your husband said that thing that just cut you right it just hit you right in the right spot it may have been a small cut that you can just shrug off like I know way too many people who allow their spouse their friends their family their kids co-workers to like nick them with little small cuts to death to bleed to death yes you could shrug off one little nick but you can't shrug off a thousand of them see the question is is this a one-off event or do you do you need to stop worrying about it happen again like, like is this the 500 year flood is it is it okay just to power through it and say you know what it's going to be fine on the other side you got to use your rational brain and actually look at statistics right uh, because statistics and what we feel like aren't always the same thing but we live within the blessing of being able to look up things and know things and and have technology to help figure out what's the likelihood that this is going to happen again but if you live in a swamp you know and it's just like one more slow soaking rain that keeps flooding your house it's time to move or put up some boundaries but deal with it you're not going to be able to sustain to keep sucking it up over and over again so you're going to have to deal with it before that low-grade chronic pain kills you now that brings us to the next point acute pain heals on its own and we need to power through it but what do we do whenever the chronic pain has already been going on for a long time and we're feeling effects that we can't reverse like what happens whenever I've been running for six decades on these knees and they're already toast and how do we heal from that well the good news is that we can actually heal uh, inside just as fast or faster than we can heal outside if we'll cut out the thing that's in there uh, 
see we grow like trees okay so there's this core like year one you know is like the the most formative year in our entire life and so whatever happens year one like really forms us and then year two it's not like we're moving on a path that's really a bad analogy to think that we're like moving from one place to another on a timeline or a journey but year two it's like we get another ring on the tree and it wraps around year one. And so th there's always whatever happened earlier in our life is always at the core. And we grow from the center out, not on a timeline. Okay. And so if something happens and say, say some, some scar happens to the tree, you ever, ever cut down a tree, you ever hear about trees that'll have like burn marks and some of their rings and stuff like that because there was a fire that particular year or that it has scars underneath there. Whatever happens to us, it stays buried beneath. And you've seen this, like trees growing around fence wire that was in the way. And the tree didn't have any other choice. It just had to grow around it. I even saw one where there was like a bicycle stuck smack in the middle of this really old tree that had completely grown around it and swallowed it up. That's what you'll do with pain when you don't remove the source. You'll just swallow it up. You'll just grow around it. You'll figure out life a different way a way that may not be optimal for you, but it's the only thing that you know how to do because life has to go on and life comes fast. But that doesn't have to be that way anymore. You, you, you may have an emotional scar from the memory, but if you got the junk that's still in there, there's no need to heal it and seal it, right? Our brain does the best it can to seal it off and move on and get on to the next thing in life because you can't dwell in a pity party forever. But... It constrains us from being free after that, and there's surgery available for that now. My son has had to go to several different doctors for some medical issues, and we ended up in the office of a DO who does manipulative medicine on the skull and body. I know it sounds like uh, you know witchcraft or something. So what they do is like it's so weird and foreign to me. They're, they're like stretching things that connect across the body and freeing tension that's in the body somehow. So apparently uh, there's like this ligament that attaches to the back of your belly button and it goes up and attaches somewhere in the back of your neck. And his was like pulling and restricting movement in his neck. And, and then they're like pressing acupuncture points in his feet that are like freeing up restriction in his head. And they're like twisting his leg a certain way. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that freed up this thing on the front of his face that I can't pronounce. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And after we did this today, you may notice some behavioral changes. And I'm like, what? Like, wh how? That's connected to what? How? See, sometimes whenever things get off early and that was kind of his deal is like they we don't know what what got off or, or where there was an injury or it was just a, you know congenital or whatever but when things get off early in our body and in, in our emotions as well we'll do the best it can just to deal with it just like that tree um like, like a friend of mine, he said he had been using pliers for 10 years to pick up the lid on his crock pot. And then his wife goes and spends 50 cents on a new handle at Home Depot and revolutionizes his crock pot experience. But listen, it's always connected to something else. Like, then you got to keep pliers in the drawer. And then there's rust stains on your towel. And now your wife is a little more irritated when the OxyClean doesn't work, right? And so all these things are connected that you didn't even realize were connected. And you're like, how was that thing being off right there how is that constraining motion over here in my life 
and and you may be like like me just wondering and and you're like how is how is like me being frustrated how did, how is that affecting Jimbo over in the accounting department but it did it did your your actions may have ripple effects that are just all over the place in your world and you have no idea and these little bitty tiny actions can be affecting your marriage it can be affecting your workplace it can be affecting your church it can be affecting all of the relationships around you because you know what those shortcuts and the workarounds that you've been doing to avoid your pain they aren't as efficient as you thought you know what's efficient you being free you know what's uh, really going to work for everybody, everybody around you, not having restricted motions everywhere you go. If you're living in unforgiveness, like you haven't forgiven the people around you, you are restricting your motions. You, you are constrained. If you still let that person do whatever they want and you don't do anything about it and you're scared and you just kind of like turn the other way and you you redirect your body whenever somebody comes in the room you have these visceral reactions and you can't say that thing that you wanted to say that you really should say because you're afraid you're not living free i know a lady who spent 10 years in a wheelchair unable to walk because she was afraid of a surgery that would have had her out of the hospital in a day that would have allowed her to walk. And I know people who have hobbled around life avoiding conflicts, avoiding eye contact, avoiding people everywhere they go and not speaking up and not naming their fears and not dealing with their pain for decades when all it took was one hard conversation. It may be painful right? It, it may be like, I remember when that doctor twisted my son's belly button back into proper alignment, alignment, not fun. It was about one minute of holy terror, intense pain. But for the rest of his life, he's got freedom from that restriction. Now, when's the best time to forgive? Uh, as soon as it happens, right? When's the second best time to forgive? Now. Now's the second best. The the further back the pain goes in our history, the deeper it is inside of us, just like those tree rings, the harder it is to get to, all right? It doesn't mean that we can't get to it. You just have to know where you're going. See, we grow like trees, um, and once you've grown that much around it, it's not going to be pretty getting it out sometimes. Um, and, and this is, by the way, side note, it's why it's so weird whenever you've been in a class with somebody for a long time or a new neighbor moves in and you still don't know them. And then after the first six weeks, it becomes really awkward. Like we, when we don't do the thing that we should do for long enough, we start to internalize that we aren't capable of doing it. And then we add the fear of other people's reactions whenever we like actually do the thing. So it's like, I don't want to go meet my neighbor now. I mean, uh, you're going to wonder like, he's a, he's a weirdo. He should have came over and met me a year ago whenever I first moved in. And you'd rather them not think about you at all. So you just keep putting it off. Or you borrowed that power tool from that friend and three years later it's still in the garage and you're like, well, I don't want to bring it back now because hopefully he's moved on. Guess what? He has. And just like you are keenly aware that you have his power tool, he is keenly aware that you still have it. And he has moved on, but it's buried inside of him and it's buried inside of you. And the lie that you are believing is that if you do the right thing years later and you try to make things right, they'll all of a sudden be upset 
upset with you again. They've been upset the whole time. It just may come out. And that may not feel very good, but on the other side of that, you both won't have that thing buried in you anymore. And it goes with a whole lot of deeper things than borrowing power tools. Anytime somebody causes somebody else's loss or pain, they remember just like you do. You can learn a whole lot about uh, social dynamics in churches. Man, if there's a place that, that this is really shown, it's in church. So you don't even have to go to church or care about religion just to learn a whole lot because church is a place where people go and they really pour their heart and their emotions out. There's a guy named John Savage who did, he was a PhD, who did a studies um, on what he called the dropout track where they studied patterns of people who dropped out of church. And uh, so go figure, that's an exciting study, dropping out of church, go study all those people, interview them, did hundreds of interviews. He said there was a very distinct and virtually universal pattern to people that dropped out of church, right down to the amount of time that it took them to go through each phase. So like at one point they were totally plugged in and it's something that set them off. And, and then it was usually something relatively minor at the beginning, but then they would give this cry for help. And he said, you know, you have to learn to listen to people whenever they cry for help because you're not going to know it if you're not listening to it. They'll say things like, well, it's just not, I'm just not into it like I used to be. Well, it's I'm just, just not as meaningful as it once was. Well, I just don't like the new guy that they hired. I just don't care for this music. Do you hear things like this at work in your company? Yeah, I'm just not really on board with this new boss. Family events. And so often, using that word, just, like, you have to start to ask, well, what are you minimizing, right? So he said these church people, six to eight weeks, they stop attending, and then they go through these phases, like uh, one would be re- cutting community ties, revoking their membership, removing their financial pledge, and each phase had a very predictable timeline. He had the whole thing mapped out, and this was true for hundreds of people. And here's the amazing thing. He said that they tracked people and up to 20 years later, anywhere from like 3 to 20 years after they fully dropped out of church, when they brought the topic up of whatever it was that caused the pain in the first place, he said, without fail, people would talk about it in great detail and with great intensity like it was yesterday. They remembered the pain. See, Pain doesn't go away just by ignoring it. If there is something currently impeding your life, maybe it's time to do some surgery. Go to a therapist. Go to a, talk, talk to a friend. Talk to somebody that you trust and love and look up to. Recall that thing that hurt you because it isn't going away. It's buried in there. That chronic pain means that something is fundamentally off and you're restricted and living a constrained life from your healthy growth into your path in life until you deal with it as ugly as it is. Now, our goal isn't to live a pain-free existence because pain is one of the best teachers. But our goal would be to be a good student of our pain and to be free people. So whenever our pain is speaking, it's time to listen. So your somatosensory system, what actually happened? Describe it. Actually use words to describe the real things that somebody did to you 
in just clarity, not tainted by your emotions, but then feel it. Let your emotions have their day. Just say what your emotions are. Get them out there. Connect your emotions with somebody that understands who's gone through the same thing. Separate your emotions from the event and the person who did the thing to you. Don't hold your emotions back. Just realize that while you're feeling that thing, that how you feel is completely valid, and yet it's a separate thing to feel, and that's not the same thing as the facts that were involved. How you feel is all dependent on your story, and you are free to feel whatever you feel because you can't not feel it anyways. And then, rationally, your frontal cortex. Decide, hey, what do you need to do with your pain? There's some of us that had chronic pain and it's time to do surgery. And then some of us just need to stop irritating the chronic pain. You need to figure out why it is that you're going in circles over and over again with your kids. And why that one thing that you say to your wife always sets her off. Or why that thing that your boss does to you continually gets under your skin. What do you need to do to stop the chronic pain so that it doesn't happen and you don't have to be Superman every day and just keep running with it. And and then you need to decide, like, is there anything that I can do to heal past pain? And whatever you decide, if you're actually going to change some major ways of operating at an older age in life, it's going to be difficult and it's going to disrupt some things and it's going to cause relational issues. But your family, whatever families you're a part of, are going to be so much more joyful and happier in the end whenever you are free from pain and living as a whole you. I know it can be scary to take the steps to get the surgery done. I know it can be scary to change long-term patterns of chronic ways of living. Intervention, whatever it looks like, is always going to disrupt some things. And if you didn't have a disruption, then nothing major would be changing. But in the ways that you need to change some things that are pretty major in your life. I want to encourage you, do it. Because it's freedom on the other side of whatever's restricting you and constraining your motion. You know, I uh, knew that I had to quit my job at school. And I, I knew that wasn't me. And I knew that I had followed the wrong path to get in there. And I didn't even know exactly what the right path was for me. But I had a pretty good hunch. And now, on the other side of it, 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 was, it was painful for a little while, but I'm doing what I love now. And you know, like my wife, the, the one that I was afraid of disappointing, the one that I was so worried about, like, oh, what if she's scared because, you know, of the transition and here we are with the kids and all this. She just told somebody the other day who randomly asked her, like, how's it working out with Seth and his and new thing that he's doing, which, by the way, doesn't pay as much as the old thing. She said, oh, it's like living with a new person. And I said, really? Like, I was that much of a butt before? Apparently so. But my point is, the people that you are so afraid to disappoint are the people you can actually heal your relationship with. They won't be disappointed at all 
whenever you name your pain and whenever you think about it rationally and you decide to do something about it because then you're going to be living free from your chronic pain and when you're a free person that's going to have ripple effects to all of the family around you and you won't be disappointed either.